Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. So we have uh, been in the book of Job for the past five weeks now, and we've lived with him. Um, And there's been a lot of... um, uh, movement here in, in this room for people, uh, a lot of uh, new things that we've learned, new experiences that I pray we will be ready for. Uh, we learned a couple things about the book of Job, but that uh, the, the, the prologue, we learned that while it's not designed to uh, give us an inside track into the way that the heavens work, it's designed to tell us something. It's designed to tell us that Job was, in fact, a righteous man. We learned that suffering ultimately is a mystery. Oftentimes we come to the book of Job, the, one of the greatest sufferers of all time, and we, we search for answers. And, and the book of Job itself does not give us an answer. Uh, the book of Job presents the reality of suffering uh, as a mystery. It exposes the assumptions that we have about the world, about ourselves, and about God. And uh, as we moved into Job's friends' consolations, they were supposed to console him, uh, but Job's friends were what Job called miserable comforters. Uh, They would tell him things like, uh, your kids got what they deserved, and and you got off easy, Job. And and they weren't really good comforters to Job. And, And we learned that Job then defended himself as he looked at his own character and his own track record and said, I don't deserve this. We learned that uh, uh, how is it that we are to walk through the furnace of affliction? Each and every single one of us will have to face affliction and pain and betrayal and abandonment. How is it that you guys, that me, that us, we can walk through that without it crushing us? That's what, that, that's what we are on about. How do, we, how do we become, how does suffering help us become uh, better rather than bitter? Because it's not automatic. It's not automatic that suffering makes you a beautiful person. But there are no beautiful people without suffering. And what we need, we learned, is that we need the gospel. We need a new process. We need to see that suffering can oftentimes be the place, uh, a a gymnasium of sorts, that that, uh, is a place where we become strong. And and ultimately, ultimately, what what I pressed on you a couple weeks ago is that suffering can produce glory in you. That this is the promise that the gospel gives us. That, God, that, 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 that suffering will ultimately, as we give our suffering to Jesus, produces something heavy in us. Produces a glory in us, a, a weightiness to us. Last week, we explored the climax of the book where God speaks out of the storm. And we were reminded that God is really, 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 really big. Like one, the, the creator of one septillion stars big. And today, as we close our journey through the book of Job, we need to understand the entire book in light of the question that the Satan asks in the beginning. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Job was a man uh, worth about a quarter of a billion dollars. He was the greatest of all the men in the East. He was anything, I mean, he had the Midas touch. Anything he touched turned to gold. 
And so this accuser, this, this uh, divine spy, goes to God and says, well, hold on, do, do you think he's serving you uh, because of you, or is he serving you because of everything you've given him? And this is, this is the controlling question in the entire 42 chapters of the book, and that's what we're going to go into today. But before, again, I just want to center us for just a moment. Help me to pray one more time. Father, we thank you again for your goodness. We thank you that even as we bring all of our pain and all of our shame in this room and all of our grief and all of our questions and all of our supposed answers, all of our experiences, all of the good and all of the bad, I pray that we won't check that at the door. We, we don't come here to, to, to hang our minds up. We come in here to engage with the truth. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, uh, for those who, who, who may not even, uh, Lord, consider themselves as disciples of Jesus, would you woo them near? Would you draw them near with your love and your grace? And for those who do follow you, Jesus, may you uh, be with us. May you uh, wake us up to your glory. Help me to forget the things that I've prepared uh, if they're not going to be helpful for your people. And help me remember the things that will be. And more than anything else, Lord, as we stand up here, as I stand up here as a broken man, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, Amen. and the church said, Amen. the first week I reminded you this, uh, this quote from Peter Kreeft about the book of Job. It says, it is universally recognized that the Job is one of the greatest books ever written, a masterpiece, an all-time classic. To the sensitive reader, it is real magic. It is terrifying and it is beautiful. It is beautifully terrifying and terrifyingly beautiful. It is fascinating and haunting, teasingly mysterious, tender, and yet powerful as a sledgehammer. It can be obsessive as few books can. And it's this masterpiece of the book of Job that we've been sitting with over the past couple weeks. And five weeks, again, as James mentioned, is hardly enough time. Uh, but my prayer is that throughout this series, uh, we would have pledged our allegiance even um, in a deeper way to the good and kind King Jesus. My hope is that our imaginations would be set on fire. You know, so often we've, we've grown up in a culture or, or a, a church culture that is just all about the mind or just all about experience. Uh, but the scriptures call us to, to bathe our imagination. We, we were to think, not only think the right thoughts, uh, but see the right colors and the right depths of the world. And scripture helps us to do that. There's a lot of things I still want to say to you about this book, but for the sake of time, I want to just focus on a few final thoughts um, from the book of Job as we turn the page and close this series. The story ends quite strangely, I think. I think, you know, it, it's, it's a happy ending, but it's a little bit bitter. When, when you lose seven sons and three daughters, a new seven sons and three daughters don't quite heal you. It's a strange and happy ending. Job changes his mind. He repents. He realizes that what he'd spoken about God, uh, he's spoken about things he didn't really understand. He spoke out of turn. He realized that what he needed in the midst of his pain and of his grief was not so much an answer of why, which the book of Job doesn't give us, by the way. It, it doesn't tell us why we suffer. It gives us, though, a presence with us in our suffering. And for Job, that was enough. And for many of you, you know, you felt it. 
When someone comes near in your pain, when someone comes near in your suffering, that is enough. If you remember, the key to Job's struggle doesn't come by way of answer, but by way of presence. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. All throughout, 35 chapters in all, uh, Job and his friends were showing us the limits of human wisdom when it comes to this idea, the reality of suffering. And I argued last week that more than anything else, uh, we need to experience and see God. That's what we need. We need to see God. We need to see the Almighty. But then there's a strange scene that follows Job's repentance. And God speaks again, but this time to his friends. And he says this. After the Lord, after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what Yahweh had told them and Yahweh accepted Job's prayer. Now it's time, if you remember last week, what happens? Uh, um, Job gets a divine dressing down. Like he gets a scolding from God. Uh, the the uh, Chapters 38, 39, and, and 40 is God speaking out of a storm, out of a whirlwind. And what's that supposed to uh, uh, signify is that God is angry. He is perturbed, to say the least. And now Job's friends get dressed down heavy. God vindicates Job and reprimands his friends and will only allow his friends to be reconciled to himself, to God, through Job. Imagine that. Imagine you were his friends and now you have to go back to the guy that you just told your kids got what they deserved. You got off easy with your leprous condition and losing a quarter of a billion dollars, losing everything you have, your health, your, your wealth, your, your kids, everything, your relationships. And not only that, you must realize that if he did have this leprous condition, he would have been a social outcast as well. This guy lost everything. And you just got in his face and, and told him, you deserve what you got. You must be hiding some kind of sin. And now God is telling them, this is the guy you have to go back to. And he, when he prays for you, then will be restored. They have to crawl back to him with tails between their legs. But what does it mean? What does it mean when twice in this text that God says that they did not speak right of him, but Job did. Now, I want to remind you of a couple things that Job said, right? Job was accusing God of injustice, right? Job was saying that God could not carry out justice. There was a miscarriage of right and wrong. He was accusing God of mishandling justice. Is that right? Is that what the text is saying Job was right about? Is God saying that it's right that we accuse him of mishandling justice. I think this is what's happening here. In Job 9.17, Job states that God is causing suffering without cause, that there was no cause. He, he, he had no secret sin in his life. He was not suffering because of something he had done. In contrast, Job's friends were telling him, you must 
You must have lied somewhere. You must have stolen somewhere. You must have done something. You must have uh, been sexually, like you must be uh, infidelity somewhere. Like there's got to be something wrong with you for something to be happening to you of this magnitude. This is where often we go. We say, well, why this must be happening because of something I've done. You see, it's not that what Job said, everything he said in his 20 chapters of speeches was theologically correct. It wasn't that we should model all of our prayers after Job. He knew, though, he knew this. He knew that God was not afflicting him for something he did, where his friends, on the other hand, were just sold on the idea that he must have done something. Did he have the whole picture? Absolutely not. He accused God of injustice, but in the end, he began to understand this, that the world does not run on this karmic form of justice, of this tit for tat, of good people get good things and bad people get bad things. That's just not the way the world works. And that's ingrained in us. We need to work that out of us. And so his friends believed that God was afflicting Job because of something Job had done, which was clearly wrong. And Job, even though he assigned malice or negligence to God, like like the God of one septillion stars, he knew God was not afflicting him because of something that he had done. In this way, God could say at the end of the book of Job that Job spoke rightly of him while his friends didn't. And so, Job prays, his friends are restored to communion with Yahweh, with the Lord, and yet Job remains a broken and broke man. This is so, we we must understand this, that Job does not, um, he's still childless and penniless at this point. He's still broken. He still has seeping soars. And there's this silence between verse 9 and 10. It helps us understand the reason behind what God is about to do. Picture this with me. Job has now repented. And repentance, for many of us, may be a dirty religious word with a plaque saying, repent or go to hell. Repentance is an invitation to life. Repentance is our invitation to turn our thinking. If, if we're walking in the way of death and of self Uh, sufficiency, repentance looks like walking in the way of life and sufficiency and dependence on God. He understands, Job. He repents. He understands now that he can't run the world. That if he were in the driver's seat, he wouldn't know what to do. He heard of God, but now he sees him. He understands that he doesn't understand. And we all must come to a point at some point in our life that we must understand that we don't understand. This is not a cop-out. This is not saying there is no truth. This is saying that we don't understand everything. There's mystery in the world. But we live in such a world that we must understand everything. And yet, the book of Job clearly shows us we can't run the world. He understands that it was foolish of him to think or believe that he would be doing a better job than God would. Just, listen, listen, don't lie to yourself. You can lie to me all you want. Don't lie to yourself. There, there's a point, all of us, where we thought, man, if I were God, my life would be so much better right now. I, I would do something completely different with my life if I were the Almighty. The God of one septillion stars is not to be trifled with. Like Aslan, he's good, but he's not safe. And Job struggles. His struggles were thrown into relief, not because he received theological or existential or philosophical reasons behind his suffering. He received a person. 
He received God, and that was enough for him. And I need to stress this point. Job is still sick. He still has sores, and yet he does the right thing. He still prays for his friends. He still offers sacrifice. Job does not repent to get his stuff back. Because right? that's, that's how we can read the, the story, right? He repents, and then God blesses. That's not what's happening here. Job does not repent to get his stuff back. Job did not change his mind about God to get his money back. Job does not apologize as a means to an end. Job repented because he encountered Yahweh. He encountered God, and that's the only thing that we can possibly do. He repented because he realized what the psalmist realized, which is, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. Listen, God's word is perfect. But when I read this, it's not may fail. When it fails, when my heart, when my health, when it fails, God is still the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And even in his sad state, boil seeping, he's the kind of man that would intercede for his friends, like the ones who just like dragged him, drugged him. I don't know how to say it. How do you say it in the the past tense? Dragged him. Dragged him, drug him through the mud, right? I went to public school in Brooklyn. It's the best I can do. In his distress, Job stayed tethered to God. In his agony, he remained in the pursuit of the face of God. He fought forward. This was a truly righteous man for nothing. For nothing. He has nothing, and he's still good. This isn't a mercenary relationship that he has with God. This is not a relationship that is based on the exchange of goods and services. Do you love me because of what I give you, or do you love me because you love me? Do you love me because of what I give you, or do you love me for who I am. When things are on the up and up, when our stomachs are satiated, when bank accounts are full, when our bodies are healthy, it's easy to praise God. We can forget him as well. Don't get get it twisted. We can become self-sufficient and forget him. But it's easy to praise God when all things are going well. It's not difficult to love God when things are on the up and up. Verse 9 then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job, God, uh, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him, this protection around him, protection around his house and everything he has on every side? His portfolio keeps on getting bigger. Like everything he puts his finger on turns to gold. You've blessed the work of his hands. Anything he does prospers. His possessions, oh, they've increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch it, and, and then tell me if he doesn't curse you to your face. It's interesting. I, I love just the, uh, just, just as a point, uh, the, the artistry of the book of Job. Uh, uh, this word curse is actually bless, right? It's the same word for bless. and It's, it's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek. Just, just see. Take, take it all away. See if he blesses you. Let's see if he stays tethered to you. 
Do you worship me because I bless you? And as long as we're full and healthy, we'll never really know. Not, not really. I'm not, it's not, I'm not saying it's not possible, but we'll never really know. Which doesn't mean that we don't, again, but we'll never really know. We will never know whether we love God because he gives us health until our health fades. We will never know whether we love God because he has given us such affluence until things turn bleak and investments crash and burn. And even after everything Job goes through, God's servant Job does not curse God. And then this happens. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. It's only after it's been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that Job does indeed worship God for nothing, meaning he worships God not because of what God has blessed him with, but simply because he loves God. It's only after that that's improven that God restores Job's riches. The sequence, the sequence is so important for us to understand because to misunderstand the sequence is to fall back into the mistake that his friends were defending, that God gives good to people who are good and do good. And God gives bad to people who are bad. And so if something bad is happening to you, you must have done something bad. If we don't get the sequence right, we're going to fall right back into that thinking. And now that the Satan has been proven wrong, Job has been vindicated as a truly righteous man, the Lord has a choice now. Will he leave him in his sad state for the rest of his days or restore him? And in God's lavish graciousness, he restores Job with double why he had. But why? Why double? Like, why not the same or why anything at all? Now that it's been proven that God blesses people, this is so important. Listen, God blesses people not on the basis of their behavior, not on the basis of their righteousness. We know that Job cannot be restored because of Job's repentance, but because of God's grace, his prodigious grace. Let me say it this way. God blesses who he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with how much he wants. Because his blessings are not payments, they're gifts. But this is how we see it. Imagine, imagine, at the end of the week, the direct deposit hits. You're already depressed because you know you got to pay bills, right? It's all going to go anyway. But imagine, direct deposit hits at the end of the week, you call your boss, Thank you so much. Oh my God, I can't believe you've done this. You've paid me this week. I, imagine, you're chasing that client for weeks. They finally pay you. You send them a quartet and flowers and bouquets and chocolates. Of course not. That'd be sick. That's your due. You've worked for that. Like, when the deposit doesn't hit, you're calling HR or, or whoever, the finance team, like, where's my money? That's my due. 
Now imagine that today you walk out and someone gives you an envelope with $10,000. You did nothing for them. They expect nothing back. Imagine if you walked away and said nothing, didn't thank them. You believe that that was your due. That would be horrendous. You would be horrendous. Because that's not your due. That's a gift. And yet we see God's blessings as payments and not gifts. And so God better bless me for my good behavior. How awful would it be to treat that as your due? We deserve payments. You deserve, pay- you deserve fair payment for fair work. That is your due. But we don't deserve gifts. And when we, ger- when we turn God's blessings from gifts to payments, we believe we begin to deserve them. So I repent and God has to bless me. I believe the correct doctrine with the right level of intensity, and God has to bless me. He has to spare me from hardship. I give my life to Jesus, and it's smooth sailing from here. I give to the poor, I expect a greater return, whether it's in the form of financial compensation or praise from others because we post it online. Whatever it is, we begin to prostitute God's blessings, and we believe that God owes us for our good behavior. It goes so much deeper than suffering, this book of Job. It gets to the very foundation of what we believe about ourselves, the world, and of God. Suffering in this book exposes the true question. The true question isn't isn't necessarily suffering. Suffering is a device to use that exposes you, that exposes us. Is God worth your worship because he is God or because of what he gives you? This is the question. And this is the balance that we need to reckon with. This is the interplay that God loves to give good gifts to his kids. He he loves it. He loves to give good things to those he loves. God is not stingy. In the depth of his heart, God wants your greatest good. He wants what is best for us. The problem is so often my best and his best don't often align. It's often that he has to destroy our dreams, our best, our vision of the good life, things that get in the way of his best. He has to deconstruct our visions of the good life that ultimately will not satisfy the deepest parts of us anyway. And that deconstruction is often incredibly painful, incredibly painful. But God is committed to your joy. And he knows, listen, he knows that your greatest joy, I don't care who, like, we all have stories We'll have pain, we'll have grief, we'll have joy. Your greatest joy is him, period. That is what you were created for. Regardless of your ethnicity, your pay bracket, who you are, what you've done, what you haven't done, you you were built to enjoy God. You were built to find your happiness in God. And this is why God exalts himself. Because as God exalts himself and we see him, he is giving us the greatest good, which is himself. Let me say it this way. God wants you to be happy. I know Christians don't like the word happy. We like joy. Right, joy. Happiness. Is, no, listen. Happiness is, is, is a very good word. And I use happy and joy interchangeably. That's, that's, that's what I do. In fact, in the Beatitudes, a good translation of the word blessed is happy. Happy are the, the ones who thirst for righteousness. We all want to be happy. And I want to say this. God wants us to be happy. 
Let me just go on record. God wants your joy. God works for your joy. God works for your happiness. Blaise Pascal said that even the man who commits suicide is looking for happiness. Everyone is looking for happiness. I love the way that John Piper, he breaks this down in five statements. The first one is this. The longing to be happy is a universal human experience, and it is good. It is not sinful. We need to kind of deconstruct this Christian narrative that happiness somehow is sinful. The second thing he says is we should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing. Imagine that. Imagine you come to church on Sunday and the preacher saying, you should be happy. Is, it, is this prosperity? Like, what's, what's going on here? Just wait. Let me finish. We should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. The deepest and most enduring happiness is found only in God. Not from God, in God. The happiness we find in God reaches its consummation when it is shared with others in the manifold ways of love. This is what that means. It means when you enjoy something, you naturally share it, right? I don't have to sit here and give you a course. I've said this before. You're tired of hearing it. I don't have to sit here and give you a course as to how to share the thing you enjoy. You go to the restaurant, you see that movie. You're go like, it's a natural, it, it doesn't feel complete until you share it. And finally, to the extent that we try to abandon the pursuit of our own pleasure, we fail to honor God and love people. Or to put it positively, the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary part of worship and virtue. This is another way of saying it the old way. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God is our greatest good. He is the greatest source of happiness, the greatest source of joy, the greatest source of rest and contentment. Psalm 1611 says that at his right hand there is joy forevermore. And God will remove anything in your life that will get in the way of your truest joy. Even the things that are good. Even the things that so often steal our truest and deepest joy. This is what I meant when I said a few weeks ago that one of the main ways that God will use or turn the suffering in our life for good is by allowing it to expose us, expose what we really love. Suffering itself, I want to say this, is never good. We should never, the scriptures never, ever, 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 ever call you to thank God for the suffering. But what the suffering can produce in you. The beauty, the patience, the perseverance, the depth. There is no person that you've ever met that's truly beautiful. A soul, a beautiful soul, a deep person, a person of, of service, a person who is, is, gets over themselves, a person who's not easily offended, who hasn't suffered well and suffered much. We thank God for what the suffering has the potential to produce in us and through us. And one of the things that suffering produces in us is a deeper love of God for God's sake, for his sake. That is your, that is your highest good. Do we love God or do we love what God gives us? Do we love God for God 
or do we love God for his stuff? To love God for the things he gives us really is, to love for the, is really to love the things he gives us. He, he becomes a conduit by which we get what we really want. To love God for God is to know that to have God and is to find and experience the deepest joy, the deepest happiness, the deepest contentment. It's, it's to sing with the psalmist in Psalm 27. It's to say, oh, one thing I have. One thing I have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And suffering is going to take you by the scruff of your collar and it's going to get into your face and it's going to ask the question, is your God enough or do you need the extras put in to follow? When God is all you have, you realize that God is all you need. And this was Job's journey. And this will be your journey to one degree or another. The question on our doorstep right now. I'm not using this just as a rhetorical device or to try to look like I'm asking you a real question. You need to ask yourself this question. This is the question that's knocking at your door right now. Is God enough? Many of us have not been tested, and so we don't know. The question is knocking at your door, and you may be afraid of answering it because you may be afraid that he's not. And the only way that he's going to become is to answer the door and face the reality. You're safe. It's, it's okay to admit that. It, it, it's okay to come to the place where, where you've been exposed. It's okay. You're safe. Answer the door, regardless of what you may find on the other side of the door. Be honest with yourself, because if we fail to open the door, suffering is going to come like a battering ram one day. It's going to knock you over. Period. You think you're immune. You're not. It's going to come for you. And it's much better to be able to cultivate a love for God, your tr to, to pursue your joy, to pursue your happiness in God rather than wait for disaster to strike and have the wind knocked out of you by suffering because the fact is that we will all face it. How do we learn then, the question is, preacher, how do we, then how do I love God? How do, how, do I, how do we learn to love someone? Learning to love is like learning to speak. The only way that you have learned the language is by having the language spoken to you. That's the only way we can learn, right? And so how do we learn to love we, we meditate on the fact that we've been loved. We begin to love someone by learning what they like and what they don't like, what their preferences are, what their characteristics are, their personality. More than anything, we learn to love God by spending time and wasting time with him. As we spend time with God and his word and prayer, we learn a few things about him. We learn what he likes and what he doesn't like. And when we love someone, we seek out ways to please them. And so how do we grow in our love for God. Very simple, but, but very hard. We realize that he's loved us first. If we, listen, you can try all you want to try to love God, and you're going to crash and burn. You, you, you're going to become so depressed at your inability. It's not going to go well for you if we just sit here and I say, you got love God. Now, do it. Love him. We, we can't until we realize, until we see that he's loved us first. Love is a language. 
The way we learn the language is to be spoken it. And we've been spoken love. You want to know how much God loves you? Do you? Do you want to know? Look at the cross. Where the ultimate Job bled and died in our place. Because God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. We receive a whole host of benefits, don't we? Benefits aren't bad. What God gives us isn't bad, by the way. I'm not saying that we don't receive things from God. Let me give you a few of the things that we receive. And let them be pillars of remembrance for you. Of how much God loves you. We are justified by faith. Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Meaning this, that in order to be right with God, in order to be the conduits by which God is renewing the world, that doesn't happen because of what we do. It happens because of what Jesus has done. We're united to Christ. Colossians 3.3 says, For yous have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Meaning that we collectively now live with a deep connectedness in Jesus. Your address is not what's on your license. Not ultimately. Your address is in Jesus. If you follow him, if you know him, your address, your, who, where you live, you're enveloped by him. In Christ we are now. So that his righteousness, everything he's ever done in his perfect life, when God looks at you, he says, you've done it. His inheritance, his name is on the deed of the universe. So is yours because you're in him. Our lives are no longer our own. We are hidden in Christ. We are forgiven. Settle with that for just a moment. Every sin, and not just forgiven for past sin. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. He rose for your justification 2,000 years ago. Your past sin is forgiven. Right now, right now, you, you stand forgiven. You stand holy. You're a saint. You're a holy one. Even the Corinthians were saints. Your, your, your present sin is forgiven but so is your future sin you you stand in the presence of god now fully and forever forgiven but god shows his love for us romans 5 8 says that while we were still sinners christ died for us god didn't wait for you to clean your act up right he he, he wasn't he wasn't waiting for you to get your stuff together and if that wasn't enough if that's not enough if it's not enough that you are justified by faith, if it's not enough for you that you are uh, united to Christ, if it's not enough for you sitting here that you are fully and forever forgiven. Romans 8, 16 says that we become children of God. Ephesians 3, 6 tells us that we become heirs of the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 will speak to us about us being ambassadors to Christ and the gospel. He partners with us. 1 Corinthians 15 will speak of the fact that we will be resurrected in glory. The body you have now, you may shed for a while, but it will be resurrected. Your physical body. The scriptures have no conception of this forever after in this ethereal world where we are just spirits. This earth is ours. He's made us heirs of this place. Don't know if it's going to be called Panania. 
I hope so, right? I mean, I know we're not at the apex of human history like every single age thinks, but this place will be here. This earth will be here. Our bodies will be resurrected. The kind of bodies that can walk through walls and eat fish. Let me tell you how you can grow for your love for God. Meditate on his love for you. Don't try to work up love for God. It's impossible. But you can hear what he's done for you. He's justified you. He's forgiven you. He's made you a child. He has made you an heir. He has made you a partner in his renewal project. He will resurrect you in glory. Meditate on this truth. Allow them to uh, infiltrate your imagination and your mind. And if that's not enough, even if all of that's not enough, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? that he might bring us to God. If we had all the benefits of the gospel and not this, it would be hell. If your idea of the everlasting is that we have healthy bodies and healthy minds, no mental health issues, please, Lord, right? No knee or back problems, no money problems, no nothing, no stress, no familial dysfunction. If we had all that without Jesus, it would be nothing. Because all of it, that he might bring us to God as he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. All of this, all of the justification, all of the forgiveness, all of becoming an heir, all of partnering in his renewal project, all of it being resurrected in glory, all of it is pointing to one thing, to be with God. The whole point of your life, the consummation of your entire existence, it's all pointing to this picture. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. If you're living for anything else, but for the moment that you see Jesus, you're living a defunct and deficient life. I'm sorry to tell you. If there's anything else, that is, there's, there's good motivations, your children, your, 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 your spouse, your, your, your job, your friendships, beautiful, deep things. But if this isn't sitting at the very apex and at the center of your life, if your whole life, if this, isn't, if this reality of seeing Jesus isn't the greatest gravitational pull, then we're not living life. Everything else loses its lack, everything is lackluster when, when the very thing that doesn't, that doesn't drive us is this moment where our faith will turn into sight, where we see Jesus face to face and he holds us in the most intimate way, touching someone's face. We don't do that, right? Like at morning tea, I'm not going to start touching your face. That's weird. It's too intimate. But there's this picture where he comes down and, and he wipes every tear from your eye. How long is that going to take? Who cares? We got time. This is the moment 
that gives meaning to every other moment in your life. This is the moment that imbues your work with meaning, your relationships with meaning, the mundane things with meaning, the fact that one day we will see him. If you don't treasure Christ above all else now, you're not going to have a good time in heaven. You're just not. This is, we're preparing to treasure him for all of eternity. And the fact is, listen, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm not really asking you to work yourself up. I'm just asking you to think of the ways that you've been loved. That's it. And allow that to form in you. Uh, allow Psalm 42 to be real for you. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Let me, listen, what time is it? Let me wrap this up. The book of Job is a masterpiece. Even if it doesn't set out the, to answer the deep questions we have about suffering, it gives us something so much better. Something we don't even know we need until we get it. Right? You know, like when you, like you don't even know you were that hungry until you ate. It reveals to us that what we really need in the midst of our pain and suffering are not answers, but a person. And that person has walked the road of suffering. That person has entered the ultimate furnace of affliction. That person has entered into the very pit of hell and the grave for you. That person drank the cup of the wrath of God. That person was abandoned. That person was spit on. He was abused. That person was ultimately murdered. Why? So that this person would be our great high priest, pleading our case, standing in our place, and revealing to us our deepest need, namely himself. I'm going to invite the band up. This person is Jesus. It's the one that we honor. This is the one that we praise. This is the one of whom all of heaven is singing. All the living creatures around the throne of God sings. All the elders and all the angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is what they're singing right now. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and to receive wealth and to receive wisdom and to receive might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the book of Job. We thank you that the God that we were just speaking of right now, we have a sister in your presence right now. Seeing these things right now, the things that we can only think of and imagine. And so, Lord, as we sing, as we pause, as we hold silence even, May you give us the energy, the power to receive your love for us in Christ. Help us to not believe the lie that we need to work ourselves up. Help us to not believe the lie that you are disappointed in us. Help us to not believe the lie that we have to clean ourselves up before we come to you. Help us to not believe the lie that comes from, straight from the pit of hell that somehow we still have to pay for our own sin. Help us to not believe the lie that you are not enough. Help us, we pray, to know that we have a firm foundation based on the righteousness of Jesus and not our own. Help us, Lord. Reveal your glory to us now. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according 
to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, this is, I'm speaking to you, I'm praying right now for those who are in this room, I'm praying for you right now, this is what I am praying, I'm not speaking simple words, I'm praying this for you, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now as we sing, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, we may be sitting here not thinking that we could ever really love God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think according to his power at work within us, the power that rose Jesus from the dead, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. We got to sing. We got to take communion. This isn't something to be quiet about. And I want to honor you if, you if you need a moment, but we're going to sing. Please don't feel compelled. Just, just allow this word that Christ loves you intimately to change you. And as we do that, we're going to take communion. And if you love Jesus, if you know Jesus, if you follow him, I invite you. And maybe you, you want to begin today. Maybe your first act of obedience is going to be to come with us, to come to the table with us and take the bread and take the juice that represents his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. I love you. Praying for you.